Golasso. This morning we come to the end of the cycle relating to these four measurables. We come to equanimity once again. And I think it's quite clear that we can objectify ourselves, that is, treat ourselves as an object, and this is where the low, self, low self-esteem, self-contempt, and all of that comes from. So one is taking oneself as an object, finding that object unpleasant, disagreeable, and then disliking it, and then carrying on from there. So as we know that we can do this with respect to ourselves, and it's all the more obvious that we can do that with other people, it happens all the time, where rather than viewing other people as subjects who are actually looking back, we simply see them as objects that are either pleasant, that give rise to a sense of pleasure, or displeasure, or nothing special, indifference. So there's a very concise way of referring to this by the German philosopher Martin Buber, and it's entering into what's called the I-it relationship. Many of you may be familiar with that already, but it's really very dehumanizing, and we can do it to ourselves, which is really quite cruel, uh, to not even have empathy for ourselves, not even to like ourselves, but it's just the same whether we, when we apply it to others as well, just treating others as, you know, how do you appear to me? What do you do for me? You know, the I-it relationship, as if we treat other people like their food in the cafeteria, or we're selecting what kind of a um, you know, smartphone to choose or to buy and so forth. And so in this practice of equanimity, one can look at it in so many different ways, a matter of balance, of course, but it's also really a matter of humanizing, in, insofar as we're attending to human beings, humanizing our relationship with others. So that, because the opposite, this I-it relationship, is exactly dehumanizing. We're just treating other people as, as objects, as if there's no one looking back. And that happens all too easily. Frankly, it happens every time we enter into attachment and hostility, or ha- attachment and aversion. Because it's always attachment to something that makes me feel good, or aversion to something that makes me feel bad, and therefore then the response comes out, attachment, aversion. But it's always for an object. Whereas loving kindness is always for a subject, compassion always for a subject, empathetic joy always taking delight in the well-being of a subject. And likewise, we're trying to now complete the set with equanimity, that we're engaging as we are ourselves subjects, we engage with other subjects, attend to each other as such, and in that way break down the barriers, which is what the four measurables are all about, breaking down the barriers, seeing through the veneer, seeing through the veneer. If we're looking at objects, whether it's a lovely flower like this one right here, and I know, yeah, it does have a very nice fragrance as well. It has a lovely texture. It's a very soft flower, this plumeria. Um, But that's all there is to it. And that is its appearance is all the way up and all the way down. You look at it at this level, then you take out a microscope, take out a more powerful microscope down to the molecular level, the atomic level, subatomic level. And by the time you've done that, you've seen all the way through it. There's nothing more to it. There's no mystery to the flower. It's all appearances. There's no flower looking back. right? Whereas if I just look straight ahead at Cecil, and then I should do the same thing, get out all the gadgetry, all the, all the instruments of science, and look at them, get a macro, and then go micro, and then look deeper and deeper, and go right down to the cellular level, the neuronal level, and then down to the molecular, the atomic, the subatomic. And so I've got this zoom lens in and out to the most elementary particles of Cecil, and then zooming back out again, and then seeing all of the social, social reactions or inter- interactions that he engages in. And so I say, boy, I got a total zoom lens, big wide angle. I can see all of his social interactions. And I go right down to the atomic level. I say, boy, I totally got him, right? 
and I totally missed him. Because the only thing I missed was that there's actually somebody there, you know, somebody looking back. And that you don't get by looking objectively. Right? So that's what we're trying to do, to humanize a relationship with humans, to sentient beingize our relationship with other sentient beings, animals and so forth. Uh, and that's what equanimity is about. And I want to stop talking. There are many differences, so I can reiterate just a tiny bit from yesterday. And that is in terms of the way people physically appear. Of course, some people are more attractive than others. That goes without saying. But also, as we go more seriously, more in a more meaningful level, um, some people's behavior is simply more wholesome, beneficial, virtuous than others. And that's going to be true for probably a very, very long time. Likewise, people's way of speaking, some is benevolent, some not so much. And then mental states. I mean, we have people from you know the most despicable people in human history all the way up to Buddhas and great sages and saints and so forth. And that's going to be true for a very long time as well. People are really, really different, you know, in terms of their virtues and, so, and let alone their physical attractiveness and their, some more intelligent, some less intelligent and so forth and so on. So the differences will be there and some of the differences are really meaningful. The differences of virtue and vice, those are really, really meaningful. And it would be a profound mistake to look upon them evenly as if there's no difference. And also, and this was the, I, I won't give this story, I've told it so many times, my first encounter with His Holiness Dalai Lama, one-on-one, -on -one, I addressed this issue. And that is, what if, you, I'm going to give a real short snippet of it, but what if you practice Dharma, you practice Dharma really seriously, and it works. And that is, you start cultivating and experiencing greater virtues. And your mental afflictions go down, and you, st and you start behaving better. You don't treat people so badly. In other words, that was the whole point, but now, since you're practicing Dharma, and many people aren't, how do you avoid the sense of being superior? Because you are. I mean, it's better. What can we say? It's better to be a kind, loving, generous person than a mean, despicable, self-centered person. And if you started out in the latter, and you ended up in the former, that was good. And now you are superior to who you were. And that's, that's kind of the idea. But then, if you're realistically viewing the earlier self of yourself as inferior to the one you've become along 10, 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 years of practice, and you say, boy, I've really grown. This is, I'm a much better person now than I was then. Then how do you not just go around feeling more and more pompous until finally, when you achieve perfect enlightenment, you've achieved the perfect perfection of arrogance. I am now, I truly, I win. Because I am a jina. Ajina, J-I-N-A, means a victorious one, which is an epithet of the Buddha. So why are the Buddhas not the most pompous, arrogant, condescending, and contemptuous people in the universe? Because they have every right to be. Everybody is, I mean, from a Buddhist perspective, obviously. Everybody is inferior to a Buddha. That's why you want to achieve perfect enlightenment. So what's up with that? So we already had the issue of why the Buddhas are not the most infinitely miserable people in the world, because you know they have boundless compassion. Why are they not infinitely miserable and infinitely arrogant? I don't know. <laughs> I guess that's just part of what's being purified. Now you you can you can meditate on that one. I think we can all figure it out. Um, but this point, and the, and this will be the point I end on, and that is looking for the common ground on the common ground. The common ground between you and the great sages, the saints of the past, the present, the enlightened ones, the bodhisattvas, and so forth, where's the common ground? Because there is common ground, right? Between you and the Dalai Lama, you and 
whoever it may be that you tremendously admire as a profoundly spiritually realized being, it's not only that they, are, they could be in your future, but they are also in your present. Where's the common ground? And then I spent a lot of time thinking about when he was still alive especially, but I can think about him still, Osama, Osama bin Laden, and really finding there was a, a fair amount of common ground not in his face, his strategies, beliefs, I hope not, and, and not in his malevolence. I don't have that much malevolence. But I saw that dedication to his cause and, and his, the austerity of his lifestyle and his, his, willing, his greatness of collaborating and so forth. And even though what he did was 100%, who needs to say it, horrendous. But I said, yeah, I kind of get you. I kind of get you. You know, you're kind of like a monk, like some really psychotic, crazy, malevolent monk. But I kind of get that. You know, you went totally astray. You went to the dark side big time. But yeah, I can see, I, could, I can imagine myself living up in caves in Afghanistan and just some other guys around, you know, we're all contemplative yogis and really dedicated to our cause, except for I wanted to be the bodhisattva ideal with harm to no one. And he wanted to harm pretty much anybody who got in his way. But I could find, I do find, common ground. In no way empathizing with his projects, his motivations, and so forth, but seeing, ah, yeah, if I scrape off all the dead skin, all that cancerous overgrowth of his policies, his network, and so forth, there's somebody I can relate to. I can see, I get you, I get you. And you probably, I, I'm going to assume you've had another, another rebirth. I can't imagine it's going to be a good one. So may you be free. May you be free. Because I get you. There's a level where you and I are the same. I can really resonate with you. And that goes for George Bush as well, and Clinton, and Obama, and all the historical figures. You know, there's, there's a level where, can you resonate with them? Or do you just feel, no, I'm superior to you in every possible way? And if you're there, then you're stuck, right? But can you find a point of resonance, and then work from there? And when you see quite clearly, with your wisdom, I mean, Osama is such an easy target, but the malevolence there, his delight in other people's misery, the pomposity, the arrogance, the elitism, and so forth, those are mental afflictions. That's what they are. They're mental afflictions, just like racism and mental affliction, and so forth. But they're not hardwired. They're not intrinsic to any individual. So may you be free. May you be free. And may you find the happiness that you seek from the greatest depths where we resonate. May you find that happiness, and may you be free. So let's practice equanimity. Is the foundation for everything else. Settle your body, speech, and mind in the natural states as you've done before.
And as you settle your mind in this natural state, releasing all grasping, you release all identification with your own negative qualities and traits, thereby releasing low self-esteem. And you release all identification with your positive traits and qualities. thereby releasing all sense of superiority, of arrogance. You release it all, and you're free, superior to no one. And in your very ground, you're inferior to no one either. You're free like space. And now bring someone vividly to mind, whom you find quite disagreeable. It may be because of the way this person has treated you in the past, and it may have been indeed really injurious, wrong. Or it may simply be this person's qualities that you find so disagreeable even disgusting or contemptible. Bring this person vividly to mind and focus clearly on this person's negative behavior, negative qualities, all that makes him or her so disagreeable. And I'll let that, in this laboratory-controlled experiment, let that aversion arise towards this despicable person.
and see how you have been the creator, the sculptor. your own construction of this person, for which the building blocks were your own memories, your memories of this person's behavior, your memories of this person's qualities. And out of these raw materials, you've constructed in your mind someone who is 100% disagreeable, no redeeming qualities at all. and therefore a worthy object of loathing, of contempt. And then note that this is a cartoon. This creation exists only in your mind, nowhere outside. So look through this construction, your own fabrication, perhaps inspired by true events, like one of those movies that is fiction, but inspired by true events. Look through the movie, look through the construction, and attend closely to the person who is a subject like yourself. Look through all the veils until you find the common ground, you find the resonance, you find someone like you. With each in-breath, arouse the yearning. May you, like myself, be free of all that troubles you, free of all mental afflictions, all negative habituations, all that brings distress in your life and in your interrelationships with others. With each in-breath, imagine this person becoming free. Outbreath arouse the loving kindness, the aspiration. May you realize your heart's desire, your innermost desire, before your desires and aspirations become contaminated and disfigured by your mental afflictions. May you find genuine happiness and the causes of such well being with each outbreath.
Imagine this person finding the happiness that he or she seeks. Allow the appearance of this person to fade back into the space of your mind, back into the substrate. And now bring to mind someone with whom you are very enamored, great admiration, strong attachment. And attend closely to this person's attractive, admirable, desirable qualities. The ones that give rise to such attachment. Be they physical or mental, behavioral. What draws you to this person so strongly? And see that once again you are the artist, you are the creator. Out of the raw goods of this person's virtues, appearance, voice, and so forth, you've created someone who is 100% good, who exists only in your mind. And now look through the veil to someone who is looking back who does indeed have virtues. But look through all the veils until you find someone like yourself, wishing to be free of suffering, wishing to find happiness. Attend closely to this person.
with each in-breath as you've done before, arouse the compassionate yearning. May you be free of suffering and the causes of suffering. With each out-breath, arouse the yearning. May you find happiness and the causes of happiness. And imagine it to be so as you breathe in and breathe out. Now bring to mind someone towards whom you feel rather bland, indifferent, no strong feeling one way or another. This person may have treated you neither particularly well or badly, be exceptional neither in terms of virtues nor vices. In other words, be simply quite ordinary. Bring this person vividly to mind. the sense of indifference arise. Not caring about this person one way or another.
And once again see that whatever is coming to mind now is simply a caricature, a creation of your own, fashioned from your own memories, with with no one-on-one correspondence with anything outside of your own mind. through this creation to that sentient being who is the center of his or her own mandala with his or her own yearnings, hopes and fears and practices before with each in and out breath. Now let your awareness expand out in all directions to all the sentient beings around you. And in the same way, evenly, breathe in, breathe out with compassion and loving kindness.
Release all appearances and let your awareness rest in its own nature with no object. So, enjoy your day.